0: Welcome to this second episode in the Herbert Smith Freehills FDI Friday podcast series in which our foreign direct investment regulation experts are sharing their insights into FDI regimes around the globe. I'm Ruth Allen, a professional support lawyer in our competition, regulation and trade practice in London, and I'm joined today by Veronica Roberts, UK regional head of our competition and regulatory practice, who also heads up our global FDI group, and David Cooling, a partner in our technology, media and telecoms practice. We're going to be keeping the focus on the relatively new national security and investment regime in the UK, enforced since 4th of January last year, and taking a more in-depth look at the application of this regime to tech M&A in particular. Now, acquisitions in a broad range of tech-related sectors can trigger mandatory filing obligations under the NSI regime, with a corresponding prohibition on completion prior to clearance. And this can include the acquisition of minority stakes with no general materiality thresholds in terms of turnover of the target company. So it's a regime that really needs to be considered at the outset whenever you are acquiring a stake in a company active in the UK in a tech related sector or indeed increasing an existing stake, even if you don't anticipate any national security concerns. David, could you perhaps start us off by running through the various tech-related sectors where mandatory notification obligations can be triggered under the NSI regime?
1: Sure, Ruth. The headline for me would be that NSI has really entered the stage as a consideration I have to deal with in most of the transactions I'm working in in the tech sector right now. There are 17 sectors within the NSI regime generally, and, and over half of them relate to the technology sector and Standing back, I think this flows from the prevalence of technology across a number of critical systems within our country, not purely defense related or dual use technologies, but wider critical systems that if impacted could cause serious risk of harm to the state or to individuals that are living within the state. Before I go through those technologies, just as a quick reminder from the last episode in the series, Any acquisition of more than 25% in a company which carries out activities in these sectors, and indeed any increase beyond the 50%, 75% thresholds after that, will trigger a mandatory notification requirement. Now, the sectors themselves are pretty far reaching, quite complex and in some places defined in some guidance that has been shared with the regulations. I'll give you a whistle stop tour, but the headline for me is that every time I'm in a transaction that comes close to one of these sectors, we need to go back and look at the guidance and I need to have a long conversation with Veronica. the first category, advanced materials, is one that has been a feature of a number of the recent notifications, primarily because semiconductors lies within it. And there's a lot of political debate as well as national security debate around the evolution of those technologies and some countries that are in, interested in investing in them. But within the category two, we have nanotechnology, phototonic and optoelectronic materials and devices. And whilst we're not seeing much activity in the M&A sector in those areas at the moment, We expect that that will pick up in the coming decade. More active is the advanced robotics category, which will include, perhaps most saliently at the moment, self-driving vehicles, but it'll also capture any robots that take data from environments looking like drones or satellites or underwater vessels. But to ease the burden of notification, there are some exclusions for widely available robots such as smart vacuum cleaners and lawn mowing robots and the like similarly active in the MA space is the artificial intelligence sector now the reason this is so active is that actually the definition is wide enough to capture a number of companies that would not necessarily identify themselves as ai companies looking at the guidance you've got to go back to two key questions does the entity carry on research or develop goods or software or technology that use ai and does the ai work of the entity get used for tracking advanced robotics or cybersecurity so any traditional ai MA would definitely be core cool, but look out for wider application of this category similarly wide and just as active and indeed has been for the last 5 10 years or so is the computing hardware supply chain so any upstream activities Products and functions that take place within the supply chain for computer hardware, which includes owning, creating, exploiting IP for CPUs, and as well as architectural, logical, or physical designs for such units, is a sector that the regulation is interested in. To me, that could catch nearly nearly any MA within the IT sector. Cryptographic authentication a little earlier in the M&A cycle here, but for reasons that are obvious will be an area of focus if we start to see more transactions in this space. Data infrastructure transactions have been a feature of the M&A market for the last 10, 15 years or so. And depending on which entity a data infrastructure target is serving, if it's, if it is transmitting data that's relevant to public infrastructure or performs other qualifying activities, Not only a company that owns and operates the assets will be caught by the regulation, but other activities in relation to specialist or technology services involved in those assets. For example, cooling services or maintenance services could be caught simply because those entities have access to that underlying infrastructure. The next category is more obvious military and dual use technology where a target entity researches technology or produces technology that requires export authorization under the existing specific strategic export control list then that too will be caught by nsi regs quantum technologies albeit a fairly early in the development cycle are clearly an area of interest for most countries and therefore not a surprise to see them on the nsi's list of sectors and lastly and definitely more active in recent years, the satellite and space technology sector, not just development of uh, satellite communication links or manufacture and testing of spacecraft and launch vehicles, but also creating or using space debris management technology or ground support or use even of space-derived data will bring you within the bounds of this category.
0: Thanks, David. It's certainly quite a long list and um, clearly scope for that to get really quite complex in terms of going through and finding out whether or not the specified activities of a target actually fall within the definitions. So in practice, what do you do if it's not entirely clear whether a target's activities actually do fall within one of those relevant sector definitions? Can you go and seek clarification from the government in advance of deciding whether or not to notify?
2: Yeah, so the government has published some pretty high-level guidance to accompany these regulations that David's been talking about. And that guidance is aimed at helping investors to determine whether or not a particular transaction will be caught. But of course, and that that will be clear from the list that David's just run through, in practice, there still remain a lot of grey areas. And working out whether or not the mandatory notification obligation is triggered by the tech involved in a particular deal can be a complex assessment, and as David said, can involve some pretty detailed discussions with the clients as well. So far, in in some cases, it has proved difficult to get meaningful engagement from the ISU, the Investment Security Unit, that handles notifications in terms of whether a particular transaction is caught by one one of the mandatory filing sectors, even though there are, of course, significant sanctions for failure to notify. And a notification will be rejected if, for example, it's made as a voluntary filing when it should have been made as a mandatory filing. But an update to the government's guidance for investors in April this year did suggest that the government's more willing to try to offer more informal guidance in advance of notification. I think it's definitely worth approaching the ISU where you're unsure whether or not mandatory notification requirements would be triggered. You don't always get get a clear answer, but but, but the answer can, in most cases, be really helpful um, for deciding your NSI strategy. And I think another point to make there, Ruth, is it's also important to remember that even if you decide that the target's activities fall outside of the specified sectors, that would mean you'd need to put a mandatory filing in. You do still need to consider the risk of the transaction being called in for review via those much broader call-in powers. As we explained in the last episode, those call in powers can be used in any sector and they can also be used in a wider range of circumstances. So they would cover asset acquisitions as well as acquisitions of a lower level of control via shares, referred to as acquiring material influence, which can arise at very, very low shareholdings. In one case we advised on, material influence was held to arise where the investor bought a 12% shareholding with a board seat. So it is worth thinking, even if you're falling outside the mandatory filing sectors in a tech transaction, should you do that voluntary filing in any event? And we are starting to see the ISU ask questions about non-notified transactions a lot more frequently because its transactions intelligence team are really ramping up its activities. So this is always going to depend on the deal you're doing but it may be worth considering making a voluntary filing to get a definitive clearance decision especially in these tech related sectors which are a key area of focus for fdi authorities around the world right now
0: thanks veronica that focus on tech related sectors certainly comes out clearly from decisions under the nsi regime to date where remedies have been imposed Um, Just picking out a few points from the annual report on the NSI regime which was published in July, um, that report covered the 12 months to the end of March this year and it's perhaps not that surprising that military and dual use goods and technology came out as the top sector for call in for in-depth investigation. That accounted for 37% of call-in notices. But I think it's interesting to note that the advanced material sector then ranked equal second alongside defence, with 29% of call-in notices. And the key point there, as David mentioned earlier, is that that sector includes semiconductors. And if you go on to look at the sectors where final orders have ultimately been imposed, so we're talking there about prohibitions, divestments and also conditional clearances, Of the 15 final orders imposed during the period covered by the annual report, four of those were in the military and dual-use goods and technology sector, three were in the advanced materials sector, and three were in the computing hardware sector. Now, we've talked in previous episodes about the very limited information that is made publicly available by the ISU in individual cases, but looking at those cases where final orders have been imposed in tech-related sectors to date, what sort of trends are we seeing?
1: Well, Ruth, seeing seeing you and raising you on those statistics. Uh, if we look at just prohibition decisions, in fact, it's a clean sweep for the tech sector. All three of them have involved the broader tech sector. There's vision sensing technology with dual use applications, electronics design software, and semiconductor technology. Now, now a common factor in all three of those cases is that they involve Chinese or Hong Kong based investors. And as Veronica and Gavin discussed in the last episode. Whilst the NSI regime doesn't distinguish between investors on the basis of nationality, what we can see in practice is that now and for a while, Chinese investment is likely to come under particular scrutiny, especially it seems when it comes to investment in tech. It's also worth flagging that one of the prohibitions, Beijing Infinite Vision Tech and the SCAMP case, it was in fact the acquisition of an IP license that was the trigger trigger event for an application of the NSI regime. Veronica is going to touch on this later, but I find that incredibly interesting that it's not just M&A, but also license acquisition and that one of these early prohibition decisions has validated there. And then in terms of divestment orders, you've got arguably one of the most high profile decisions under the NSI regime to date, the November 2022 decision to require an to divest its acquisition of Newport Wafer Fab, which was a transaction involving the semiconductor supply chain in Wales and the wider Cardiff Technology Hub. The deal was actually completed back in 2021 before the NSI regime even entered into force, but then it was called in for review under the government's retroactive calling powers. Now, a decision to require post-completion divestment to a third party is quite an interventionist approach and one which, unsurprisingly, is often greeted by displeasure and dissatisfaction from all parties. In this case, Nexperia put out a particularly strongly worded press release at the time that the decision was announced accusing the government of sending a clear signal that the UK is closed for business and Nexperia has since lodged an application for judicial review. Now, whether or not we agree with that, sentiment, Veronica, what's clear from this decision is that the political importance of the tech sector in the UK will continue to drive NSI call-ins.
2: And so I'll jump in and just talk about the conditional clearance decisions that we've seen in the sector. We've been involved in four of the overall 12 conditional clearance decisions that we've seen under the regime so far. And of course, what happens there is the transaction is allowed to proceed, but subject to conditions that are meant to address the national security concerns that have been identified And here, three, at least three, actually, of the 12 conditional clearance decisions to date have involved tech-related transactions. So we've got sensitive technology relating to devices used in airwave networks used by emergency services. That's the Epirus Sapura case. Aerospace technology with dual-use applications. That's the investment into reaction engines. And quantum technologies, the Iceman CPI case. And I think we can probably add two more to that list with the two most recent conditional clearance decisions also appearing to involve military and dual use technology, although the exact details are unclear from the very high level information that's been made public. So those two cases are subsea optical inspection technology, and that's the University of Southampton case, and naval propulsion systems, and that's the EDF GE steam power case. And as discussed in the last episode, there is a real lack of transparency around decision making when it comes to remedies under the NSI regime. We've had a pretty mixed experience in terms of the level of engagement you get with the ISU at the remedies stage. In some cases, there's been detailed negotiation of remedies and the ISU has been really keen to make sure that the remedies will be workable in practice for the UK company. But in other cases, we've had less engagement on remedies. But in terms of the trends that we're seeing emerging in remedies under the regime where they're applied to tech transactions, we're seeing that the conditions often relate to restrictions on information flows back to the investor or access to particular technology for the investor and a desire to keep certain types of technology in the UK. In the cases that we've been involved in, the ISU has often been interested in seeing the detail of employment contracts and company policies. And their focus there has really been on making sure that certain types of tech IP will not leave the UK or will only do so in very limited
0: circumstances. Thanks both. And um, moving on now to the practical implications of all of this for deal planning, what would be the key tips you would give to investors seeking to navigate this regime in the context of tech M&A in particular?
1: Well, the starting point, Ruth, is that with any technology acquisition, before even starting on the transaction documents, there's a new diligence load. So, if you're targeting an acquisition close to any of the technology sectors that we touched on earlier, you've got to have a good look at the product, good look at the uses to which it's put and the services which it's supporting, and then look at the guidance with the regs and take a view on whether or not the technology falls within the mandatory notification uh, categories. And if you're not sure, you might need to take the prudent view that it could do and seek voluntary notification. Now when you then move into the transaction drafting on a, on a pure whole acquisition SPA, you're going to have to think about a CP because you don't want the transaction to go through and then be called in and be subject to a divestment order later. So the are going to need to think about whether they're willing to accept the, the time delay and potential financial impact of an in-depth investigation. And if that investigation identifies a problem, what sort of remedies the parties are prepared to accept in order to continue with the transaction, and in what circumstances will the transaction fall over?
2: Yes, and sometimes there we've also thought, haven't we, David, about putting in restrictions on the investor making any changes to its ownership structure whilst Mm a filing process is underway, where, of course, there is always a risk that those changes could impact on the NSI filing process and the timing it
1: takes. Absolutely.
2: And of course, the other thing to remember is that even if you're acquiring less than 25%, you do need to consider whether you'll meet this material influence threshold, which enables the government to use its broader call-in power. And the fact is that if the acquisition is in the tech sector, which is really one of the most sensitive sectors from the FDI perspective, you do need to consider whether or not that call-in power might be exercised. And then also important to remember that that in call in power can apply to asset acquisitions as well, not just share sales and of particular relevance in the tech sector. And you mentioned this before, David, it also extends to the acquisition of IP. So including, for example, the acquisition of a license to use IP where this, acquir- this gives the acquirer the right to use the IP to a greater extent than before. And David, you talked before about the IP licensing case where the government has flexed its muscles in this space. And I think it's really important to remember that the regime can apply there, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, I'm I'm fascinated to see how this one plays out, because potentially it opens up all manner of transactions that one wouldn't normally see as um, the purview of, of regulators. Any Any technology collaboration, any joint venture, any cross licensing to support product development, could theoretically, looking at the, you know, looking at the black letter law, be caught by this call-in regime? Now, I don't think we've seen a prevalence of such cases yet, but it seems to me that it it'll be important to watch how that develops over the coming years. Taking some of that together and looking at the trajectory of um, early stage fundraising for tech startups, we can see that there are a number of potential impediments to the usual quick flow of those transactions, Veronica, because in theory, a VC investor might come in. That say below 25% and then exercise option rights to pass 25% during the product development. Then once technology is proving successful, there could be licensing deals where one or more of the investor base takes a commercial license to uh, exploit that technology in their own business. And then finally, the various uh, exit thresholds, liquidation events, can take shareholdings beyond 50% or 75% for another member of the investor base. Now, I don't think the regime is fatal to all of these, and of course, if one's done the diligence assessment at the beginning in one of the rounds, then subject to the business having changed between round round A and round B, uh, the analysis will be the same. But nevertheless, it seems that it would introduce a delay that has to be taken into account. By the business at a time when cash runway is important at each at each stage. Now I, I think we're seeing delays of around two to four weeks even in the most straightforward of cases and in sectors which are closer to the more sensitive technology sectors we could plan for an even greater delay and we need to make sure that investors are aware of this at the outset.
2: Yeah that that's right David in terms of two to four weeks I mean th- once you've actually got your filing in, the review of straightforward transactions raising no issues should be completed within 30 working days. But where a more in-depth investigation is required, the review process can take up to 105 working days, so you're getting towards six months or even longer if the parties consent to an extension, which of course you would do if the alternative was going to be a prohibition decision. So, yes, as you say, it's really important to factor this into planning, um, deal planning, and planning for changes in investment over time. O- almost always, it's just a process, and you will ultimately get clearance. But of course, it's a regime which imposes sanctions for failure to file, and you need to make sure that you're going through the hoops each time. And of course, you may have, depending if you're looking at something that's operating cross border, you may well have other FDI filings that need to be. Um, sought as well at the same time. So we talked about remedies already but from a practical perspective if you anticipate depending on the identity of the investor that potential national security concerns may arise it is worth thinking from the outset how these could be addressed because many of these conditional clearance decisions have gone through with some basic precautions being taken in terms of the information that's actually going back to the investor. And David, you talk quite a bit about um, tech startups, but I think the other important point to flag here is that this regime imposes a mandatory filing requirement if there is an intragroup reorganization. Mm. So the more established tech companies that are operating in one of these mandatory filing sectors, even then, when they're doing some sort of reorg, it's quite possible that they will have to do a filing before they can complete that, isn't it?
1: That's right. And and for many of them, that there may be the first time that the government has a proper look at their technologies, the uses to which it's being put and who's got access to it, Veronica?
0: Yeah. Thanks, Veronica and David. Some really useful tips there for investors involved in tech m um, and I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. But thanks to our listeners for joining us. And please do let us know if you have any feedback on this episode or any suggestions for areas to cover in future episodes of FDI Friday. Our next FDI Friday episode focuses on the application of the NSI regime in the energy sector and that one is already available on our website as well alongside the first episode which recapped the key features of the NSI regime and considered the overall trends we've been seeing in decisions so far. Please do have a listen if you haven't done so already.